Welcome to episode 13 of the Celtic Whiskey Pod. This week, myself and Luke talked to Alex Chasco of the Teeling Whiskey Distillery. Many of you will know that Teeling have been bottling whiskey since their formation in 2012 and have been in whiskey production since the foundation of the distillery in 2015. This year sees their casks of whiskey reach an age of six years. For many of this, that means that it is now more than just a young whiskey, but something that can be seen as an indicator of the real character and style we can expect from the distillery. Previously, the innovations manager at Cooley and Kilbegan distilleries, Alex has been at the helm of the teeling ship from the start and oversaw the build and commissioning of the distillery. And then, of course, the formation of the new expressions and styles being released by the company. Some of these expressions are, of course, whiskies that were originally distilled elsewhere, namely Bushmills or Cooley. But it is the use of innovative cast finishes that seems to have elevated many of these whiskies into a different level. It would seem that the amount of awards that the company has won since then pays testament to this. As always, Alex was a joy to talk to, easygoing and as relaxed as ever, but with all the knowledge and experience you would expect from a master distiller. We hope you enjoyed this episode. Unfortunately, we had some sound issues thanks to Zoom not complying with us. I have done my best to make everything sound better, so I hope it doesn't spoil the conversation too much. I'll be back at the end with more. Cheers for now. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. Welcome to the Celtic Whiskey Pod. Alex Chasco from Teeling Distillery. It's very good to have you with us here today. Hi, Al. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, great. Yeah, I'm um, uh, really looking forward to this, um, having some uh, interesting chats and talking about some great stuff. Um, but recently you just released the, the new 13-year-old single grain, um, which is bringing back a bit of love to the category and I think sort of aged single grains have uh, sort of disappeared off off the market for a short while so maybe you can talk us through how the 13 year old came together and uh, what thinking process was behind the, the finishing and, and uh, things like that. Yeah so we've had a great response to it it hasn't been out on the market very long just what maybe two weeks two or three weeks um, but it's been um, really well received a 13 year old single grain uh, that's spent four years in uh, Bordeaux red wine casts. And um, it has, a, how to describe it? It's sort of the uh, older, more mature version of our uh, current single grain or our normal single grain, if you will. Um, yeah. There's a familiarity, I think, there with the uh, influence of the red wine on the uh, grain whiskey. And of course, it's, they're both made from uh, maize and a grain whiskey, um, but there's it's also a bit uh, smoother. I feel like the uh, flavors are a bit more incorporated uh, into the the whiskey, um, and it's a it's a lovely, uh, lovely whiskey. Yeah, and and you know the, we always get this question like, how do you? Uh, what makes you make an old whiskey? How does that happen? And I think John Teeling probably tells it best. Where it says like, no one plans on doing that, right? What happened was we uh, had some grain whiskey that uh, wasn't used, and uh, then it got sort of put to one side in the warehouse, and a number of years go by, and you realize, like, Jesus, it's actually got a good uh, age to it now. Like, uh, we could probably do a, an aged release of this. It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? And, uh, yeah, and that's how it, uh, it comes to me. There's, there's no one, I don't think anyone actually, like, puts out in their financial forecasts, uh, this will become a great uh, 30-year-old uh, whiskey, right? <laughs> you, that's you know. that's interesting because we did have a, a chat um, uh, 
with uh, Billy Leighton from Middleton earlier in the pod. And he was saying quite the opposite. He was talking about they taste certain casks and put them aside and they have this 40 year plan. Um, so, yeah, it's just interesting to hear a, a different side to things. I think that there is a part of what Billy's talking about is true. Like we would have, say, pot still that's in um, large casks that I would uh, mm. have in the back of my mind, like, oh, that'll be a nice 12 or 15 year old, right? Um, so there, there is an element of that, right? I think that there, there is also an element of uh, you do the maths and realize, like, Jesus, 2009 was how long ago? Like, wow, that's a that's an old whiskey now. Like, yeah. yeah. Especially because uh, we, we kind of lost a year and a half recently. <laughs> Everyone, yeah. Everyone's thinking back. It's like, yeah, 2019, that was last year. No, it wasn't last year. That was two years ago now. Uh, <laughs> yeah. What have we all been doing, you know? Um, yeah. yeah, definitely. It was actually Kevin O'Gorman, sorry, to correct my, my um, name mistake there, who said that. But anyway, <laughs> my apologies. But um, grain whiskey, um, it's it's an interesting category, I, I think. And um, would you say, like, Irish grain whiskey is particularly good compared to, you know, what you get from Scotland? Um, I'm sort of thinking about... They, they would predominantly use wheat as their main ingredient, wouldn't they? And uh, corn in Ireland, is that correct? Yeah, in general, uh, Scotland would tend to be uh, wheat-based uh, and uh, going through a, a column distillation, so our classic coffee, still with an analyzer and a rectifier, whereas in Ireland it would be a corn or maize-based, and you would have a, a third column in there, usually an extractive distillation column, uh, that would give it a bit more of a sweet, light, approachable nature. And you know what? I think people forget about grain whiskey. Also. Like all of these blends that we're drinking are predominantly grain whiskey. So I mean, we might not be drinking gra grain whiskey on its own, right, and, and calling it uh, grain whiskey. But we're, we're drinking a lot of grain whiskey when we're drinking Irish whiskey, uh, which I think is uh, important to remember. Um, I think what I've liked about our grain whiskey is typically a grain whiskey will be the backbone or the base of a blend and a, and a blender sorry would, would tend to look at the malt as providing the, the flavor that they layer on top of the grain whiskey right uh, and what i like about our grain whiskey is it's got loads of flavor in there uh, because we've put it into the california red wine cast or in the case of the, the recent one there the french red wine cast, and um, it's just uh, taken on all of this flavor and uh, aroma from those casts, right? Uh, and I think that grain whiskey in general, if you were to put it into a unique uh, and a more flavorful cast type, it takes on those flavors quite well, uh, the same way that it takes on flavors from the malt quite well when you're making a, a blend. Um, so that's kind of an interesting one there. I think the hard part with grain whiskey is it's a category that's not very well known amongst consumers, right? People don't go out looking for grain whiskeys. If you, if you did see it, let's say 15 years ago, it would tend to be a very old release of a Scottish grain whiskey that somebody else yeah. had forgotten about in their warehouse, right? And it would be you know, a highly limited, uh, highly prized by collectors uh, release and not a... Uh, you know, everyday, reasonably priced, standard, available range. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I did remember seeing some of those ones that were like 40 years old and uh, a lot of the time you'd taste them and you'd be thinking, yeah, is this really 40 years old? You know, it tastes like a 10 a year old single malt. But uh, I think that's because a lot of the time they were put into knackered casks and uh, there was very, very little activity within the wood um, for those 40 years. So um, they're kind of interesting things to taste, but maybe not that mind-blowing in terms of character and, and flavor um but yeah, yeah back to sort of higher single grain i think i think it's it's a nice sort of trump card to have the, the fact that it's it's you know made out of corn i think is is a particularly interesting sort of aspect to it i remember tasting or not tasting but smelling in the 1980s my my dad pouring uh famous grouse into his glass obviously not tasting because I, I was very young but in those days the, the grain component would have been made from corn and a really sort of distinct smell that I can remember to, uh, to this day and kind of stays with you. But yeah, I'm, I'm rambling a bit, but my, my point I was I was trying to trying to get to is, uh, do you think in, in Scotland, they th this is kind of a, a off the wall sort of question, um, do you think with Brexit and everything, they're, they're likely to move back to corn again? Because obviously the, their wheat kind of tends to come from Europe. Um, yeah, that's a good question. In the 1980s, their corn came from Canada, and then there were sort of tariffs and restrictions put in on Canadian imports. But now they've got tariffs and restrictions on European imports. So it's a, it's an interesting one to keep an eye on anyway. I don't know what they're going to do. Maybe, maybe um, barley, like unmalted barley. Would that be, I don't know, what, you know, rye? I have no idea what they would go towards. What would you grow in Scotland that would not be um, malted barley? No but idea. then, you know, global warming and everything, you could always see fields of corn being planted in Scotland. They, they down in grow, Kent but, or something, yeah. It was definitely <laughs> down in Kent, all these Proseccos and everything popping up from the south of England. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. Um, on, on that grain in Scotland thing, I know that what when what changed my attitude towards grain whiskey as a consumer was uh, tasting some Scottish Malt Whiskey Society kind of grain whiskies. And uh, I suppose just because of the nature of their kind of whole setup and their, their USP, you go in with more of an open mind on these different single casks and I'm like, Jesus, there's some amazing, amazing grains out there. And then, you know, that in turn, even with the launch of your, your own single grain, um, a number of years ago, uh, Alex in the, in the, the Trinity range or whatever you want to call it, with your, with your small batch and the, the mm. single malt. Um, it's definitely in the, obviously the, the Quebec and eight-year-old was, it was a cracking grain whiskey. Um, so it's, it's certainly a, a good time to be, to be getting into grain whiskey, I think. Yeah, I think we forget also that the bourbon would essentially be a grain whiskey, right? Like there's, there's a lot of other places around the world, Canada, United States, they do uh, what is essentially grain whiskey, and just that's that's the whiskey. That's just what it is. Uh, any plans to put in uh, some column sales in in Teeling? <laughs> Can you squeeze them in somewhere? Oh, there isn't enough room there. You know, grain whiskey is a very um, industrial, large process, and uh, so no, there's no plans to install any grain columns at the uh, new market distillery. Um, you know, in Scotland, and they've got about 130 different malt distilleries and uh, three or four grain distilleries that are operating. So uh, we're quite happy to to buy our grain whiskey in. Yeah. 
And in terms of uh, grain at, 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 at the distillery in Dublin, um, could you tell us a bit about the, the progressive blending you do in the in terms of uh, blending and then aging some of the, the whiskies? You were the first uh, people, definitely in Ireland anyway, that I came across doing that. Maybe it's it's very common and I'm just ignorant, but um, could you tell us a bit more about the, the process that goes in behind that? Yeah, that we do that. Uh... A fair amount, actually. It's a, it's a hallmark of our um, small batch, um, but we, we like to play around with the casts at Teeling. And um, part of the, I think, advantage that we have uh, is the flexibility to, to own the stock and to get our hands around it and to, to change it and, and make it. You know, I think that the uh, grain whiskey, the 13-year-old grain whiskey is a good example of that, right? We, we had uh, grain whiskey that was of a certain age. It was nice. But we needed something else. What was what were we going to do with it? Oh, we'll, we'll blend it together and we'll fill it back into some uh, interesting wine casts and, and see how that uh, changes things. And will we use that in a blend or we use that in a single grain? I'm not really sure, but, you know, it's going to be better than it was before. And we'll, we'll sort of figure it out. And... Um, what we do that with all the time with is our, our small batch, our our blend, where we take grain whiskey and malt and we blend them together and then put it in a rum cask for another uh, 12 months. And then from there, it's not just take the last cask that you filled and empty that one, right? It's uh, the, You have a, a choice as to how you're going to blend from there going forward. So it's at least 12 months, but sometimes it's 14, 16, 18 months that the uh, uh, whiskey is in the rum cask for. And uh, we'll go into the warehouse and say, okay, what's April like? What's September like? What's October like? And uh, you know, oh, and the ones in April have got a bit more sweetness to them. Okay, I like that. Now, the ones in October have a nice finish, but they don't have the rum nose. So we try and, you know, we take a second bite at the cherry, if you will, of uh, blending and its progressive blending approach. Uh, and we'll do that with the uh, single malt and uh, uh, single grain uh, also. We'll, we'll look at different uh, casts of different uh, ages and uh, you know make a, a determination as to how we're going to uh, move forward to try and create the best product that we can because for us it's all about the taste. It's all about um, mm. trying to make the most um, appealing and um, high quality product that we can uh and, and always put your best foot forward yeah there's um there's a huge amount of uh talk about wood types and uh cast types uh these days are, are there any in particular that that you like working with obviously you've mentioned rum and the, the sort of wine casks um you know rum with the, the small batch and wine casks with the grain um but yeah uh, maybe what what is your your favorite ones to work with, and what your least favorite ones? <laughs> Ooh, uh, lately we've uh, had a lot of really interesting whiskey coming out of chestnut casts. I've really enjoyed the the, the results from chestnut being an unusual wood type, uh, and it's a more porous uh, wood, so you get a, a different um, type of maturation that takes place in a chestnut cast than you would in a uh, typical uh, oak cast. Uh, yeah, rum casts are um, I mean, there's such a wide library and spectrum of rums out there. So you can go from your yeah. you know, uh, high ester Jamaican rums to your uh, uh, more Caribbean or uh, um, Central American rums. Uh, there's other funky um, agricultural rums out there, right? There's, there's, a, there's a wide range. I think it's pretty 
fun to play around with with that. Um, and then things as simple as, yeah, wine and beer. We've had some great results with some some beer casks. We've done the, the stout cask, but then also um, barley wine and uh, other uh, um, ales, red ales uh, that have been uh, really interesting. Um, and it's it, what I like about that is somebody else has had their DNA or their, their thumbprints, their fingerprints on the, the, the liquid. And you get a chance to take uh, an element of what they've created and uh, get that um, magic to rub off onto your uh, whiskey also, right? So, you know, if somebody's yeah. made a nice uh, stout and you can really appreciate the, the finer nuances of that, you can also pick that up in the whiskey. Because, yeah, Irish whiskey with its light, sweet, approachable nature. Some people might see that as a, a negative, right? That like, oh, it's, it's always light, sweet, approachable. But it's, it's also a positive in that it'll take on new flavors from the cask quite easily absolutely um, yeah yeah i get that completely yeah um you mentioned sort of beer and, and brewing um and your your background is is beer and brewing that's what got you where you are today i suppose what can you tell us what your sort of journey has been through the sort of whiskey world and beer world where you started off and, and how you ended up in ireland yeah, so I started off as a craft brewer in Portland, Oregon. And when I was in college, uh, the cool, hip thing that like all the people were wanting to do was to go off and buy a pickup truck and have a dog and be a brewer, right? Be a craft brewer wearing, um, you know, dirty, beat-up Levi's jeans and, uh, uh, you know, boots and uh, making beer. Uh, and uh, a guy that was uh, friends with my father, Carl Okert, he uh, was at the Bridgeport Brewing Company, which is one of Oregon's oldest craft breweries. Mm -hmm. And uh, I just always heard about what Carl was doing down there at the brewery and thought, well, that's interesting. And I went down and, and talked to him one day and uh, he was taking me on a tour and was explaining to me fermentation. I thought, yeah, I remember fermentation from like high school biology. That was that was interesting, right? And then he's uh, talking about what's going on during the uh, boiling in the kettle and the isomerizing the hops uh, and all of that. And I thought, geez, that's bit like the chemistry classes that we had, also. And so there was a lot of different science and applied science that I liked about the the, the brewery. Um, you know, the uh, CO2 levels and uh, all of the, the production of the alcohol during fermentation and all this sort of stuff. And uh, it was sort of so was both the uh, cool uh, industry that people were going into and something that like someone who was fairly good at the science classes, but maybe didn't get straight A's could, um, you know, have a go at. Um, so I started out on the the pegging line, right, as you do, uh, and, uh, and the bottling line, and worked my way up, and uh, yeah, like I sort of was progressing through that, became interested in uh, distillation, I was sort of seen as like, well, the next thing, like I'm talking about like 1997, people were like, oh, Bruins had it, like they're not going to be making beer anymore, <laughs> it's all about distillation, and like, oh, right, distillation, yeah, what's going on there, and um trying to find out about uh, distilling. But back then, you know, in the early days of the internet, if you were to go looking for uh, information about the distillation, like that's bootlegging, right? That's that's illegal. Like that can get you in trouble with the, the ATF, the federal government, that sort of thing, right? <laughs> so it was hard. And I guess it was always 
And I'm fascinated by that challenge of like, how are you going to, I know people are doing it, right? Johnny Walker and uh, Jack Daniels and Jim Beam are making whiskey, but like, how are they doing that? And um, an opportunity uh, came up to go and study uh, brewing and distilling at Harriet Watt University in Scotland. And it was one of the few places that you could go to and and learn about both beer and uh, whiskey production. So I, I did that and um, made the transition then to distilling. And I think that there's always been a bit of that craft brewer there with me. I think that's mm -hmm. kind of one of the things that I bring to the Tina Whiskey Company is that view of like, what if, like, well, we're making pale ale, right? But what if we put wheat in there and we made like kind of like a Hefeweizen, but more like a wheat ale, right? And like, well, what if we did this? And well, what if we did that? And uh, I think what I gained from the years of experience as a craft brewer was the knowledge that consumers will follow you on that journey if it's good, right? If you have something that is fundamentally interesting and unique, then people will like it, they'll, they'll find you. Uh, and I, I think it's the one thing that the spirit industry has been missing for the last 30 or 40 years is that element of experimentation and crafting new flavors that it doesn't have to be two notes. Yeah. yeah. Some genius from 1840 figured out the, you know, best way of making scotch whiskey. And we've been doing it ever since the same way, right? Like, no, like you can, you can play around with it. It doesn't have to be a static uh product that's always the same in the glass bottle right yeah and that that this, uh, brewing industry i think is is a little bit ahead of distilling in, in that regard because they, they maybe because they have less rules or they don't have any rules really um but i, I think a lot of the innovation even the, the sort of boring side of uh process and whiskey making is is coming from brewing now so yeah it'd be very interesting to see what the distilleries of the future look like, you know, because several things that they might bring in that are completely alien to, you know, single malt scotch, you know, having that as the, the example of a sort of classic whiskey. Distillery. Yeah, I think we see a bit of that there with gin at the moment, right? There are people trying new botanicals and new things around gin, and that's, that's interesting. I think it also becomes a bit uh, confusing for consumers, right? There has to be uh, some sort of a, a reason behind it. It can't just be we threw in Loganberries just because I got in a bunch of Loganberries. And, you know, I mean, like there has to be some sort of, you know, logic or, <laughs> or thought behind it, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. But it's been, it's been uh, a fun uh, journey with uh, Irish whiskey. And I'm looking forward to a lot of the other unique and interesting. Uh, things that we have in the pipeline. I guess the, the the difficult thing about whiskey is it's such a long lead time, right? We could yeah. today decide, oh, uh, I don't know, whatever is the next new thing with this, this sorghum. And you'd be like, well, <laughs> why aren't we making whiskey with sorghum, right? But it's going to take seven years before our great sorghum whiskey idea comes to fruition, right? You have to find somebody to grow the sorghum for you. You have to figure out how you're going to process it. You have to actually make it. Then you have to put it in the cask for a minimum of three years, really four or five. Um, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a long lead time. No, oh, certainly. Yeah. But I think the real elephant in the room here is, is do you have a pickup truck and a dog? That's the question. <laughs> <laughs> I had a pickup truck. Um, yeah. I'm sort of like that. Um, 
country music song, right? Like, uh, <laughs> I lost the pickup truck. Uh, I lost the dog a long, long time ago. <laughs> We're looking at getting a dog. What, what, what do you got down there in Kerry? What's it? Are you going to eat beans on a good dog? Well, I've got a lovely dog, a, a Springer Spaniel in Collie Cross. And uh, he needs a lot of walking, but he's he's great crack. His name's Sam. <laughs> yeah, that'll give you a lot of exercise. <laughs> Absolutely. The, um, that kind of dog that's bouncing off the walls half the time. A hundred percent. Yeah, he's a lunatic, but he's our lunatic. Uh, Alex, other than uh, some of all this talk about casts and and wood types, you know, it, a lot of the innovation is in grains and going back to classic or you know recently discovered recipes from old and reintroducing rye and oats yeah I know you've done a little bit of that and you know we did it previously in Kilbegan as well um is it still very much a sort of matter of experimentation with those sort of types of grains or do you think there's going to be an established style um no I think we're definitely still in the infancy uh, stage of those uh, experiments you know you do look historically to like uh what was being done 100 years ago 150 years ago you know for inspiration um, what I found interesting personally as we've sort of looked at those historic mash bills is realizing, you know what, I actually know a thing or two about milling and mashing and I don't have to take inspiration from what some guy in 1840 did. Like I, I, I'm a pretty good brewer and I can figure this out and, uh, you know, I'm going to, we, we use crystal malt, um, and we're, we're just starting our crystal malt, uh, run in the wow. distillery and then today we're even talking about it, um, of like what percentage are we going to go with and uh i had forgotten myself that last year we'd gotten up to 30 percent uh crystal malt in the, the mash which for a beer would be insane if you were to do that for a beer it would be you know closer to treacle than it would be to uh to a beer um but that's what we were doing for the the whiskey and it was working well for us um we've looked at also like yeast right and there's a, there's a huge catalog of yeast there's, there's at least what six or seven major yeast suppliers and they each have their own you know libraries of uh, uh different uh, yeast strains out there and we have uh for the last what six years gone with both uh distillers yeast and a white wine yeast which we kind of fell into we kind of we we, we had an idea of how it was a pragmatic approach as to like how we were going to end up there but we, we didn't really know where we were going to go to and it was only this last year during the pandemic when we had some time that we thought well let's re-examine that let's go back and look at like what we're doing and so we got in contact with those yeast suppliers and said okay this is what we're doing and they were like really like that's that's kind of odd uh and uh you know like thinking well it's been working it's been it's been good and they're like all right well maybe, yeah sure but like we're we're using a yeast that is typically used for sauvignon blanc Right, typically would be fermenting at around 12 degrees Celsius for about six months to nine months. Right, it would just slowly ferment that wine and produce a light, crisp yeah. Sauvignon Blanc. And we're fermenting that yeast at 34 degrees Celsius for four days, uh, and it's going like gangbusters. And um, and it was only after talking to the yeast uh, producers that we were like actually that is kind of mad like how did we end up <laughs> with that i'm not exactly sure but it works so let's go with it yeah 
Yeah. Well, if you keep the yeast happy, then it's going to work, I suppose. Yeah. 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 It was really one of those, uh, okay, it comes in a 12 kg package and we've got uh, 10 kgs left over after doing the trial. The trial was nice. We were happy with the results. Like, sure, let's throw in a few kg to each batch and see what happens. And like, and the realization, like, well, the worst thing that could happen is it does nothing, right? As long as it does more than nothing, then something's happened and that's a success, right? And we can decide if we like something or not. But, you know, you, you kind of, <clears throat> you what? It's like when you're a kid and you climb yourself up onto the, uh, high dive there right and uh you realize like well what's the what's the worst that could happen right i'm gonna get, end up with a red belly like it's, it's not gonna be the end of the night <laughs> one way or the other your shorts fall off <laughs> yeah, exactly <laughs> or you do the walk of shame down the ladder right uh, <laughs> yeah yeah um is there any like when you talk to scottish distillers so I mention Scotland all the time. This is the last time I mention Scotland. <laughs> um, but they talk about yields and all this kind of stuff with uh, yeast and, you know, liters of pure alcohol. Is there any pressure on, on you as a distiller from um, Jack and Stephen to to get the most out of your ingredients and, and sort of increase yields? Uh, you know, because we're talking about yeast, which is the, the, the main sort of thing, you know, you can do that with, I suppose. Um, or is it just really down to sort of creativity and creating flavors more than anything? I'd say there's a balance between the two of them. They like they aren't stupid, right? They they want to get as much as they can out of it, right? When you have 15 tons of barley that arrives twice a week and it's you know costing a fair amount of money for that lorry to show up, like they're they're interested in getting as much out of it as they can. And I'm interested, you know, just as a matter of own professional pride you know, trying to get as much as we can from it too. So um, it's not like, uh, oh, we go from like 400 liters of alcohol per ton to 200 liters of alcohol per ton and like nobody cares. Like no people care about that, right? That's that's money going out the door. Um, but there is an element of, uh, all right, this is a bit more expensive. We know that it's going to have less fermentable sugar in it, but we think it's going to have a big impact on the flavor. So we will do a bit of a handoff of like we will we'll accept, you know, 285 or two or 370 or something like that uh, for a short period because we know that it's going to, to you know, have a return. Yeah. And yeah. when you're using things like crystal malt, I suppose that probably has an effect on it as well, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So the crystal malt would be, uh, you'd have more of those Maillard reactions. It'd be more of a, a, a caramel toffee uh, elements to the malt, right? And so you're going to have less fermentable sugars. Those those non-fermentable sugars are going to remain uh, in the wort. Um, and so you get less out of it. And it's a more expensive raw material too, right? Like somebody has stewed that uh, grain and so it costs more to get that uh, delivered in. And there's none of it being made in Ireland, so you have to import it from the UK. Yeah. All right. Um, speaking of of, of uh, find you know expensive resource and importing things from the UK and Brexit and everything that's come up in this conversation, um, in terms of obviously you had the 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 black pits, which is obviously peated whiskey. Um, there's lots of new distilleries coming online now. They're kind of trying to use peat as their their USP, and, and Great Northern are doing some fantastic uh, peated stuff at the moment. Um, 
do you think or or is it something that you've you've been conscious of uh, or even thought about at all at all in terms of the you know peat is a finite resource that that the European Union different regulations are are going to make us leave in the ground um and i'm not trying to get into an argument about that but uh you know obviously that's going to impact its availability as a as a fuel source for both you know domestic consumption and for for distilleries um is there anything either that or anything similar to that that you, you've experienced in, in in your time since you started distilling at Newmarket? well it's difficult we've been trying i've been trying for about 13 years now to get somebody to make peated malt in ireland and uh nobody will some people will make a small, you know, three, four tons of it. Like this, so you can get, you know, small amounts of peated malt now, just in the last couple of years. Um, but uh, there's nobody that's making 120 tons or, you know, 300 tons of uh, peated uh, malted barley. Um, so there's, there's that difficulty. The, the amount of peat that's actually used in creating uh, peated malt is, is quite small. There's, there's not a huge, like you wouldn't heat your house with the amount of uh, turf that's cut for it. And um, the other thing that's interesting, I just learned uh, actually uh, about a year or two ago, is that it's not dried. So, you know, in Ireland, you got and you turn the uh, turf and you, you dry it out in the, uh, you know, the stacks. Uh, when, they, when they use it for uh, making peated malt, it's still wet because they want all of that smokiness. They're not trying to get heat off of it. They're trying to get smoke from it. Um, yeah, so I guess in that regard, right, I think making peated malt is probably a good use of that natural resource as opposed to powering a power plant or, you know, heating the village oh, houses and that sort of, you know. Um, but I also think that that smell, when you go through the small Irish towns in Europe and Donegal or in Connemara or, you know, down in West Cork and you get that smell of a, a lovely turf fire like that is quintessentially an Irish experience there. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So I'd hate to see that go. Right. And uh, I'd love to see more. Um, if we could hold turf up on a pedestal, if you will, and use it, uh, for unique uh, Irish whiskeys. I think that would be a great use of that natural resource because I don't think it really would use a whole heck of a lot of it. I think mm -hmm. you know, a couple of truckloads would, would probably do. And uh, I think it just would be really cool to have different, you know, peated single malt from the hanging bogs of uh, uh, Clare or, you know, the uh, Bog of Allen or, or different, uh, you know, areas. Um, yeah, because yeah. yeah, some people don't realize that, that um, different types of peat give different types of flavor. You know, you, you have things like uh, peat from places like Orkney and uh, sort of highlands that have sort of rooty, sort of mossy characters to the to the peat smoke and then other ones that are sort of drier and whatnot. So yeah, I'd be interested to see what Irish peat does in terms of flavor of, of yeah would that influence us with where, where we went to in scotland to get our uh peated malt from so we get it from uh elgin and they use a uh, space side uh woodlands peat uh and uh I, we thought that that had more of a um irish uh connection as opposed to an, an isla or, or more of a, a coastal uh peat um yeah yeah but you're you're right. There's there's a whole microfloral and fauna going on in the the peat bog. That's quite interesting. 
Yeah. And uh, back to the sort of environmental uh, sort of question, how tricky is it operating a, an urban distillery in terms of what you have to sort of comply with? Because obviously you can't just throw your water down the drain <laughs> and uh, there's energy concerns and all kinds of stuff as well. So uh, what, what are the main sort of things you have to deal with on a day-to-day basis? Uh, you know, we, we do have a lot of yeah, uh, high energy efficiency built into our system. We've got uh, yeah, concerns around water and uh, hot ale deliveries uh, as a big one as far as like when are we getting um, uh, people coming into the distillery, when are deliveries taking things away from the distillery, how are we going to uh, organize that with the traffic and the, you know, the school that's not far away from the distillery along with the regular Dublin city traffic and everything. Um, I think, though, to be honest with you, Al, the, uh, our own desires, just uh, as wanting to be good citizens, I think has more of an effect on, on us and how we do things at the distillery. Of like, we we want to have the most uh, energy efficient uh, process that we have. We can, you know, we don't want to put hot water down the drain. You see you know, thousands of liters of hot water going down the drain, like your first thought was like, how can we try and stop this? Like, okay, when we recover that heat somewhere, is there something that we can do? Can we not have the, you know, can you not have the tap on as, as much? Or you know, what can we uh, do to avoid that? Uh, so I think there's a lot more pressure that we put upon ourselves than anyone from a regulatory perspective is putting on us. Um, you know, we use things like a cooling tower to try and reduce the amounts of water usage. Uh, we have um, a lot of uh, uh, plate and frame heat exchangers that we use to try and uh, recover um, uh, heat and to try and have the most efficient uh, uh, heating of the uh, process. Um, so there's, there's been a lot of engineering that's gone into it, but that's really been more of our, us just wanting to do the right thing. Yeah, that's great. Um, in terms of a sort of day-to-day uh, working life at, at Teeling Distillery, uh, how does it change from week to week? You, uh, you, you're swapping between pot still malts, peated malts on a regular basis. How, how does that sort of change around? We've got a yearly schedule, right? So we look at the year and we say, okay, we're going to make X amount of single malt. We're going to make X amount of pot still. And we're going to, we usually probably have around 20, 25% of our production that would go into uh, unusual or, or unique uh, things, right? There were new product development that we're trying to push things out with. Um, and then you start off on the year and, you know, things inevitably go wrong. Deliveries <laughs> don't show up. Something happens. People, you know, quit or whatever. And, uh, and you adapt and you end up you know, trying to do the best that you can with what you, you have. Um, we, we tend to always uh, hit the end of the year target that we were looking for. Um, but uh, maybe, you know, what we planned on doing in May ends up happening in October because you get a call in April saying, oh, no, there's no way we can't possibly do that. Yeah. Or could you please, please, please change to August for me? That would be great. Um, yeah. So you, you, you have your best made plans and then, then life happens, right? And would you, would you uh, had um, so many problems with um, Brexit and the pandemic throwing spanners in the works in, in that regard as well? 
Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, Brexit has definitely made things uh, more difficult as far as trying to uh, import, uh, as far as uh, uh, casks and the uh, raw materials. Um, the pandemic uh, hasn't particularly hit us hard in that like most of our uh, malted barley would come from Ireland. So, you know, that's coming from Carlo or down from Cork. Uh, so it's not... That's not really uh, uh, getting affected there. But we did have one, no, it was the, the, the second lockdown, right? When Leo came on uh, before the Late Late Show on that Friday evening, and he was like, you can't go farther than five kilometers and, and all of that, right? Uh, that's, that's when we were like, oh my gosh, we have a malt delivery scheduled for eight o'clock on Saturday morning. Like, <laughs> is it still going to happen? Is it not happened? It was okay. We... I called up Seamus and said, look, if you come in there as quickly as possible Saturday morning, I'll put down this glass of red wine and come in there as quickly as I can on Saturday morning, too, and we'll, we'll make it happen. essential business, isn't it, really, whiskey making? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And then you explain to the guards, oh, no, no, we're doing God's work here. We're making whiskey. Right. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, but the, the logistical side of it is is oft, obviously often overlooked by the by the general consumer. Even a friend of mine who owns a, a small brewery down here in Kerry is saying, like, you know, one Wednesday the 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 third party canner doesn't show up, and next thing the tanks are full, and you can't your brew schedule is ruined for the next two weeks. You know, it's like it's it's these fine margins, and especially when you're not, you know, Perna Ricard or or Diageo, you know, it, it can it can obviously have a massive impact. So it's a it's really interesting to to kind of hear you hear you speak about that side of side of things. Yeah, of course. You have you know suppliers that let you down, and suppliers that do their best to try and uh, uh, make it happen. And you know you just have to roll with the punches. Looking forward to to the future. What what can we expect to see from Teeling? Uh, obviously, you have to keep something secret. But is there anything you can tell us about what we can expect to see in the future in terms of uh, new releases and styles coming through? We've got a lot of different things. Uh, we've got uh, some um, our fans of our very old uh, single malts will be uh, excited to know that there's going to be some uh, interesting new uh, releases there. Um, and then we've got uh, some collaborations that we're doing that I'm really excited about. Uh, there's there's uh, a few coming up here in the next couple months that are going to be um, pretty exciting. Um, and then, you know, what we're, what we're trying to do is we're trying to have more of the single pot still and the single malt uh, focus. So we did a bit of that with the, the Wonders of Wood, right? And we did a bit of that with um, talking about different uh, single casks from our, our single malt. And so uh, I'm, I'm really excited about some of those releases and trying to get some of those releases also over to the States and to other markets where we may have uh, not had that in the past. We did a good job, I think, during the pandemic of doing uh, online tastings and uh, getting feedback from consumers as to what they liked. And, and so trying to get some more, I don't know if I'd say commercial releases, but larger releases of those products out uh, into the next six, nine months is going to be uh, interesting. Uh, what else we got? Oh, another revival. Oh, no, it's not Revival Renaissance. Sorry, I get my R words mixed up there. <laughs> so we've got another Renaissance coming out. That's going to be great. 
yeah, just a few things, just a couple of stuff. Yeah. And you're doing um, the, the Celtic Whiskey Festival. Us, we're doing a, a 24, 28 and 32 year old tasting, I think, for the on the on the 24th of November, which you guys, there's loads of tickets still available for that. So if anyone's listening is interested, um, definitely jump on that one. Yeah. It's on the Celtic Whiskey Shop website under mm-hmm. the tastings tab, you'll find it there um, and all the other Celtic Whiskey Fest information. Yeah. But that's a, a one not to be missed, you know, that, that's some excellent single malts there to, to try. Uh, mm-hmm. Obviously, I think they've all won an awards. Um, best uh, single malt in the, in, in the world, wasn't it? Uh, for Yeah. The, yeah. It's always a great time to uh, talk with you guys about the whiskeys too and the stories behind it and all that. Um, and and of, of, of everything that you've done, you've done to date since the, the teeling brand launched, what's your, uh, what's, what's your favorite in terms of drinking and what's the one you're most proud of? If they're, if they're not the same thing, you know? Yeah. Good question. There's a lot, right? There's a whole bunch of different stuff that we've, we've done. Um, I think at the moment I've really been enjoying the, the Brabazon four. I think that's a, you know, the Carcabellos cast mm-hmm. is a lovely, yeah. lovely single malt. Um, I think that the 24 year old will always have a, a place in the heart with winning the, the world's best uh, single malt. Um, what else? You know, and, and even just uh, even for myself to go back to the small batch and to, to just revisit the the beauty that is that whiskey. You know, which is now nine years. You know, since we've uh, come out with it, right? So like, and, and now that's um, continued to be just a great, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Irish whiskey. No, it is, and it's one that's evolved so, so much. You know, uh, over the years, as you've obviously your own spirit has gone in there now, and it's. Uh, it's it's almost subtle how it how it does, but when you try it compared compared side by side, it's 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 drastic. So no, it's it's a it's a good whiskey. And we we tried the Babazons with you back around Christmas last year with on a on a tasting, and they were they were stunning, absolutely stunning. Mm. The, the range is, is is really top class. It really is. Yeah, I think the Brabazons are, are my favorite in the in the whole range um, for what they offer the consumer. I think they're, they're very good. You know, bang for bang for your buck. Very absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, particularly three and four. Three and four, are, uh, yeah, one and two are, are are really good whiskeys, but three and four are like just so different. Yeah, no, they're they're, they're class. What do you see the, the future in terms of where where teething whiskey is is going uh, in the world? Obviously, sales are great in the states and elsewhere, but um, I mean, there's huge amount of talk about China as a as an emerging market, and it's it's only really just happening for for whiskey now but the potential is massive are, are you going to see a lot of whiskey going that way i think that there will be some whiskey going to china china's always a difficult market right like uh, there's that uh, fallacy i think that people talk about of uh, oh if you could just sell one to everybody in china right you would have a billion sales but like you know you don't want uh, the the one sale you want the re- return customer um so yeah but as china i think um, learns more about uh, Irish whiskey as there's uh, you know, before the pandemic we had a lot of flights coming over from China there was a lot more uh, tourists coming in from the, the mainland uh, I think that was was great for them to uh, experience Irish whiskey I think that, that will be a, a big one uh, I think there was a load of uh, opportunity in South America also you look at like uh, Brazil, you look at uh, Argentina, there's places that like Irish whiskey hasn't really done particularly great. Um, a good one for us uh, recently has been Nigeria. In fact, uh, we've got a new partner in Nigeria and we've had a, lot, a huge success uh, 
that's the only whiskey over the pandemic in Nigeria. Yeah. So I think as consumers around the world are looking for new and unique and unusual whiskeys, uh, Tealing, I think, will be there to, to fill that bill. Um, well, that, that's it for me. Do you have anything else to ask, Luke? Or? No, I think we I think we we've we've covered a lot a lot there, I'm sure. As soon as we come off the Zoom, I'll be like, ah oh, no, <laughs> I wanted to ask Alex that. But, but no, I think that, that that's that's been a really interesting chat. No, thank you, Alex. My pleasure. Yeah, uh, yeah thanks very much, Alex. That's it's been great talking to you and um look forward to trying some uh, of the new aged stuff you, you mentioned there. Um whatever age it is, we'll uh we'll wait around for that. And, very good. Uh, I, I wish I could say more, out. but my lips are sealed yeah. now. I assume there'll be something out before Christmas because that's the sort of golden time, really, isn't it? Absolutely. Like that. Yes. Yeah, we go. Yes. Um, yeah, thanks once again. And uh, thanks for talking to us on the Celtic Whiskey Pod. We'll no doubt talk to you soon. So cheers. Cheers. Thanks. You're listening to the Celtic Whiskey Pod, the home of unchill filtered conversation. So there you have it. Some great things to look forward to coming up to Christmas. Maybe we should start saving now because there may be something very special on the way. It was interesting to hear what we might see further down the line as well. I for one am a big fan of whiskies made using crystal malts so that alone should be worth waiting for. But of course there's also the stuff Alex mentioned that is made with a high proportion of rye. In other good news uh, from the Teeling Whiskey Company, they just released their information of their 2020 profits and quite unexpectedly these were up 70%. Um, This jump was mostly down to reduced running costs but it's good to see them hold their own in what was a difficult year for many businesses. All that remains to be said is thank you to you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, then remember there are lots of other episodes out there with some great guests. Don't forget to like and subscribe to get updates on the new episodes. Once again, I apologise for the sound issues here, which were beyond our control on this occasion. A big thank you to Alex and to everyone at Teeling. Thank you to Luke Crowley-Holland from the Celtic Whiskey Bar in Larder. Do make sure to pop in next time you're in Killarney. It's a great place for a bite to eat and, of course, a great place for a drop of whiskey or two. Cheers and sláinte for now. See you next time.